I'd like to start to ask you, what does the job of uh, developer relations entails? What is your day-to-day -day like? Yeah, so I like to think of my job like a, like a handyman. I do a lot of different things um, within the Tezos space. Uh, so, of course, uh, I, do, uh, I do a lot of uh, programming. So I write smart contracts and uh, dApps. And because I work with the Takiro team, I also test a lot of... Uh, Uh, Takiro code and um, a lot of the new features that are coming. Um, but outside of that, I also uh, write documentation. So I wrote a lot of the documentation that's available for Takiro. Uh, so to uh, teach other developers how to use Takiro at uh, the best of its capacities. Uh, I also write documentation uh, for on other topics. Uh, so it's not only about Takiro, but I also wrote uh, tutorials about how to write smart contracts, uh, for example, how to use like the legal language uh, to write smart contracts. Uh, I also like to write uh, articles uh, that um, that explain in uh, in um, less technical terms uh, how to use um, technologies that are available on Tezos. Uh, so, for example, to explain how smart contracts work, uh, how like an NFT smart contract works, uh, that kind of things. Um, so last year, because uh, the, the pandemic uh, ended, I mean, more or less ended, uh, we started to have uh, um, public events again. So I uh, attended uh, a few events. Uh, and um, so I make also presentations during these events uh, about Takiro, about Tezos in general. So I went to an event last year in London uh, where I explained how Tezos work uh, in general. So I had a 20-minute speech about um, how blockchain works, how Tezos is different, uh, but at the same time works like, uh, like other blockchains and what makes Tezos different. Uh, so there are a lot of different things that I do as uh, developer relations. Uh, but they all uh, they all are around Tezos, so like writing code, writing documentation, explaining uh, how the technology works, um, and that kind of things mostly. That's a nice approach. If you test the code and write the documentation, that seems like a good combination. People that mm. test code should be more involved in the documentation. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, yeah, I have more experience about using Takiro than a lot of uh, of developers because I, I write a lot of dApps on uh, on my free time too. So, yeah, I know. So, I, I don't I don't work on the on the the source code of Takiro, but I have a good experience about how Takiro works, what kind of errors you get in uh, in which uh, situations. So, it's it's very good for me to explain. Uh, so there are some errors uh, that I'm very familiar with, and I know exactly why they happen. So, like they, they come, the solution comes to me in one second, while other developers may need some time to to figure it out. So it's it's very nice for me to be able to uh, to pinpoint that and then put it in the documentation. So um, to give developers a better a better experience when they they use Takedo. Oh, that's great. And yeah, I've seen uh, a lot of developers writing documentation, which can be problematic because, you know, they're too close to the tree to see the whole forest <laughs> kind of situation. And sometimes it's on a um, voluntary basis, which can also be problematic. But yeah, that's a great approach if you test the code and write the documentation. You mentioned also that you went to uh, some events this year. Uh, may I ask where? Uh, so, uh, 
the, the first one was in Berlin. There was an event called uh, We Are Develop uh, Developers. Uh, so it was a big event. So it was not like really blockchain uh, event. It was more uh, a general uh, general event for uh, for developers. Uh, but uh, Tezos had a special booth. Um, so we were able to uh, introduce the, the technology to other developers that were in, uh, interested in it. Um, I, I did a quick, uh, a quick presentation about Takiro and how it works. Um, and there were also other people from the ecosystem that, that were there. Uh, so it was very interesting. It was the first time that I was meeting other, other people from the Tezos ecosystem, like face to face. Uh, after that, there was an NFT event in London called um, Proof of People. Uh, so I went there and um, so the, all the NFTs were, were on Tezos. And uh, I did a quick presentation about how uh, the Tezos blockchain works uh, in general. And then, of course, in July, there was TestDev in Paris. Uh, so this one was, was really uh, interesting. I also gave a presentation about, uh, about DAP design. Uh, and then in November, there was a hackathon in London, uh, where we had uh, a lot of uh, students, so um, computer science students that came and they had the weekend to learn and build something on Tezos. So I went there as a mentor and I was, uh, so I was helping the, the students uh, with the smart contracts and of course with Takedo. And um, so I understand uh, what the problems were, were and how to, uh, how to solve them. So that those those were the four big events that I attended in uh, in 2022. Are those um, who organizes those events? I, I'm asking because uh, I live in Tokyo, and you can find some Tezos related events, but they're usually mm -hmm. uh, NFT and not dev focused. I was wondering, mm -hmm. are those self organized, or do you reach out to someone? Uh -huh. So in general, I'm not really involved in the organization of those events, so I'm not really sure. I would imagine imagine that uh, TestDev uh, was organized by probably the foundation or someone who works with the foundation because it was an event for uh, the whole ecosystem. Uh, the one in November was organized by Trilitech. Uh, so Trilitech is a company that works on uh, on Tezos that's based in uh, in London. Uh, and they organize a lot of uh, a lot of the events that happen in the, in London and in the UK too. Uh, but outside of that, I'm not really sure who organized them or which entity on on Tezos organizes them. I see. Cool. Yeah. Thanks. Um, you started in linguistics. In linguistics, is that right? You were a translator. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, I studied linguistics in uh, in college. Um, and then after that, I was a translator for for five years, uh, so mostly English to French. That's why I'm French, and my English is is not too bad <laughs> <laughs> because that was actually not having a good English was my job. So that's that's how I, I used to make money before. <laughs> so yeah, that's why. And uh, but I, I've always been interested in um, in coding in general. So. I started like a long time ago. I learned some PHP. I'm not ashamed to say that my first language was PHP. And, uh, 
So I, I did a lot, uh, a lot of that. I mean, a lot of that, like during my free time. And then like four, four years ago, four or five years ago, uh, I really wanted to learn more about it. So I, I, um, I, I followed some, uh, some courses on, uh, on the internet. There's a big website that's very famous called Udemy. So I was, uh, I followed a few, uh, a few courses there on, on Udemy to learn, um, uh, web programming. So I wanted to learn how to build websites. So I learned JavaScript. And a few year, um, a few years ago, I was introduced by a friend to Bitcoin, and I found the the idea very interesting. And after that, I discovered Ethereum, and so Ethereum you could play a little bit more with the code, so you could write smart contracts and applications, uh, where it's a little bit more complicated with Bitcoin. So I started to learn Solidity, and I bought uh, I uh, built some DApps on Ethereum, and uh, I think it was by the end of 2019. I started to uh, to become interested in functional programming. And uh, so I was looking for blockchains that use functional programming. And of course I found Tezos. And I found the, the idea of Tezos really, uh, really interesting. And uh, uh, I know it's, it's going to sound a little bit patriotic, but uh, there, there are a lot of French people working on Tezos. So I, I found that really interesting too. And um, yeah, I started to learn about, uh, about Tezos and, uh, I was like writing some dApps um, uh, during my free time and learning Mikkelsen and Lego. So that was uh, that was um, like three years ago. And then the pandemic happened, and I lost my job as a translator. Uh, all the companies that I was working for, they, they had no more money for uh, to pay translators. So I had a lot of free time, and I was thinking, well, let's let's use that free time to uh, to learn more about Tezos. And at that time, three years ago, there was there wasn't much about documentation for uh, for developers for newcomers to the ecosystem. So it was really hard. Like I spent a lot of hours figuring out uh, how to uh, to compile a contract in Lego, how to connect a wallet uh, to a DApp. Uh, it was really complicated. And then I thought, well, I still have a lot of free time, and maybe there are new dev- uh, developers who are going to come. Uh, and they don't want to waste that much time. So let's write about my experience on Tezos. And I started writing articles about what I learned. Um, and yeah, and that's how I started, uh, I started on Tezos, like writing articles about my, my journey and my experience and trying to make uh, the experience of new develop- developers coming to, uh, to the ecosystem easier. And, um, and yeah, now I'm here. <laughs> Cool. And what made you interested in functional programming? Um, I thought that the paradigm is, is was really interesting, and um, I was reading a lot, a lot about it, and a lot of uh, developers uh, uh, were saying that uh, it makes your your code safer and easier to reason about. And uh, it's true that now uh, I'm I've been doing a lot more of functional programming. Uh, mostly with the Lego. So Lego is very good for that. Um, I mean, if you use Camo Lego, uh, it's very good. It's a very good introduction to functional programming. Um, I also do a lot of Rescript. Uh, Ocamo, not that much yet, uh, but I can read. Uh, I can read it and understand most of it. And it's true that now there are some some patterns of functional programming that I really love. And when I have to go back to write writing TypeScript. I really hate it. There are a lot of things that don't feel safe, that don't feel 
um, you know, that you don't feel like you control the output of your code, you know, that when you write functional programming, there are like all the stuff like pattern matching and and that that's really easier to understand what the code is going to do. And um, that's something I, I really love, you know. Nice. And you mentioned that uh, there's a lot of French people doing thesis, but I feel that OCaml is the same thing. Uh, it's ma mainly popular with, I don't know if it's fair to say, with the academia in France. You can find MOOCs in, in I don't know, Intro to Functional Programming, but it's mostly, I don't know, Haskell and some in Common Lisp. Mm -hmm. The only one that I could find in OCaml is by the uh, Paris University. So, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, I didn't go to to a technical university in France, so I don't know exactly how it works. But I heard from other developers that uh, they had to learn OCaml in France, and it's probably one of the the rare countries in the world where you learn OCaml at uh, in in the university. Uh, so it's uh, I think it's it was also created by a French uh, Frenchman, so that's why it's so popular in uh, in France. And, um, but yeah, I think the general consensus about OCaml is that it's a very good language. I think it's one of the top languages that is used for, uh, uh scientific purposes. Uh, it's very good at crunching numbers. Uh, so I think that's, that's the best language to use for a blockchain because that's what the blockchain does. You know, it crunches numbers. For sure. Yes. And, um, you, you said that you do, I, I thought I'm also studying to learn camel legal and no camel mm -hmm. but for some reason i had in my mind that i need first to understand OCaml, then go to camel legal mm -hmm. and you mentioned that you program mm -hmm. in camel legal but you don't really know OCaml. and i was wondering mm -hmm. how did you start how did you because my approach perhaps is not the fastest possible but i said i'll grab a book in OCaml, and after i finish it then i go to mm -hmm. camel legal as opposed to you know just start oh yeah um, yeah, I think, yeah, Camaligo is more like, I mean, for me, in my opinion, Camaligo is more like a light version of Ocamo. And, uh, so if you read the documentation, uh, or for Ligo, uh, it explains very well, you know, like stuff like pattern matching and variants and, uh, and things like that, or, um, um, what do they call that? Like, uh, buried functions. Not that you use that a lot when you write Camaligo, but that, that's that's something good to know. And um, yeah, all those patterns that you that you learn from Camaligo, they are they are the same in Ocaml. Uh, of course, I, I read some books about Ocaml, so yeah, that that made it easier to understand Camaligo also. Um, but yeah, I think I think just the documentation on the, the on the website of Ligo is enough to understand how Ligo works and uh, how all those patterns of functional programming work as well. So you started with web development, uh, got interested in crypto functional language, and naturally uh, came across Tezos. And right now you work at ECAD Labs. How did that come through? Uh, yeah, so <laughs> I think I was very, I still feel a little bit, a little bit uh, uncomfortable because in 2020, a lot of people had a lot of problems because of the pandemic. And actually that really changed my life because I, I lost my job as a translator and I started writing all those articles about uh, um, about programming on Tezos. 
And uh, so Jeff, who is the, the CEO at ECAD Labs, saw them and he contacted me. I think it was in June 2020. And he asked me if I want to be paid to write those articles you know, and join them at ECAD Labs. And yeah, I said, yeah, I said, yeah, I said, of course, you know, so that's how I started working, working for them. Yeah, I was very lucky that year. Wow, that's a, that's a nice story. And you're already doing it for free. So <laughs> that's a no brainer. <laughs> and your documentary, yeah. and your documentation, your tutorials, they're amazing. Well written. It's easy to go through. Thank and... you. Yeah. So actually before, before working for ECAD Labs, I, I did a job for Baking Bad. Uh, another, uh, I don't. You probably know about them, and uh, I wrote the the doc. Uh, I mean, a big tutorial about Mikkelsen, and actually they hired me for that. When I talked to them, uh, they told me, "Yeah, we saw the the, the contracts you wrote in Mikkelsen, and uh, you wrote some articles about Mikkelsen. We would like you to write a big tutorial to uh, explain how Mikkelsen works and and teach the, uh, developers how to use Mikkelsen." And I told them, you know. Uh, I'm just a schmuck, you know, writing code on the, the weekend, you know, I'm not like a computer science guy. And, and they told me, well, that's actually what makes you great, you know, because you don't have all those uh, theoretical knowledges and you're able to explain, you know, in, in simple words, you know, how it works. And, uh, and developers like that, you know, they, they like to, uh, and to, to read something that's easy to understand. So they can, they can, starting, uh, they can start writing code like uh, faster rather than something that's very technical and very heavy in, in knowledge. And the, the, the guys at Baking Bad call that the curse of knowledge. Like those, those very intelligent and brilliant people who work on Tezos have that curse of knowledge. They're not able to explain in simple words how a language works or how the, the program uh, works. Well, I'm able to do it because I didn't go to a technical university. I just learned stuff on myself. And I don't have all that uh, technical baggage, so I'm able to explain in uh, in simple words what what the Mikkelsen does. So actually, my first job on 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 Tezos was writing that big tutorial on, on Mikkelsen, and apparently it's a. I mean, I got a lot of feedback. It was a big, uh, a good uh, tutorial because it was not very technical. It was easy to understand. Even people with a a basic knowledge of programming were able to uh, to understand Mikkelsen. And how do we approach your learning? Sorry, that's a very broad question. What I mean is, uh, first time I read your tutorials, I think it was how to write a smart contract in Rezo ML. And then um, I saw somewhere that you're professing your love of functional programming. Then I saw your tutorial on Mikkelson and read somewhere that you were learning Rust. So automatically, I put you in a box. It's like, oh, he's a backhander that writes smart contracts and dig deeper in lower level stuff. But then I saw a, a, a conference that you were talking and you were talking about the kiddos and you're talking about how to build better UX for decentralized web application and that you completed the Google design certification. I was like, what? <laughs> the, that, that's a bit unexpected and very, uh, the, the breadth that you cover, like you, you can see that you're going depth in the topics by your tutorials, but it's like, so how do I guess I'm, what I'm trying to ask is how the hell do you find the time to go <laughs> through all those different topics and like learning, learn then in depth? 
Yeah, that, I've always thought that uh, self-learning is, is very important. So I, I, uh, I spend a lot of my free time doing it. Uh, like if I have 20 minutes and I have nothing to do, then I prefer like reading about uh, about something or I, I also believe uh, that, so like at the moment I see a lot of new developer developers coming to to Tezos and they're trying to take shortcuts you know they're trying to like write the next big dap on Tezos when they can hardly write a normal one and there are no shortcuts like the reason that I know all that stuff is because I spend a lot of hours writing stupid stuff, writing stupid smart contracts, writing stupid devs that do nothing. Just so that experience that you get from spending hours debugging your code and understanding what you did wrong, they're invaluable. You cannot just uh, jump, uh, jump steps like that. You cannot go forwards if you don't make like dumb mistakes first. You have to make those mistakes to understand what is wrong, how it works. And then later you can start writing like better, better things. And I think it's very important to just, uh, if you want to learn, uh, it's not only learn uh, development on Tezos, it's development on, in general. And for example, last year I started learning Rust and that's what I did. I, I took like Saturdays or Sunday, I sit in the morning, from eight to 12, and I write code that does nothing, you know, just to understand like how the typing system work, works, how the borrowing system works. There are a lot of different stuff in, in Rust. And yeah, you have to write, I mean, I believe that you have to write all that, that dumb code just to teach you how to write better code later. And so I, I, I take a lot, of, uh, a lot of time to uh, first to read, so uh, I read like books about, uh, like for example, Rust. So I read a, a couple of books about it, but I also read a lot of articles online, like for example, on Medium or uh, Twitter. I mean, a lot of people, I know that a lot of people now hate Twitter, but actually it's a very, very good source of, uh, of knowledge. I follow a lot of uh, developers on Twitter and they share, uh, they share tips about, um, about like Rust or Camel or any kind of language. They also share uh, articles that they write or articles that they find useful. And if you, I think Twitter is, a, so I'm, I'm a lot on Twitter and I, I tweet like almost daily. And I think it's a very, very good tool if you know how to use it, if you follow the right people and if you get some value out of what you follow. And that's what I do. I, I, I choose the people that I want to follow. Uh, I know that some people on Twitter, some Tezos fanboys are mad because I don't follow them, but I generally follow people who bring something um, to my knowledge, you know, people I can learn from. So those are very interesting people for, for me. So I would encourage anybody who wants to learn development, whether it's on Tezos or another um, in another domain, to use Twitter for that, for that purpose. So I read a lot on, on Twitter. I read a lot on Medium. Um, in general, those those things also, it's very quick knowledge. Like on Twitter, the tweet is like 20 seconds to absorb it. Medium, I read articles that take me like 10 minutes. Uh, 
Uh, there's also YouTube. I mean, there are also a lot of um, channels that I follow on YouTube and uh, they have technical content from people who know how to explain uh, in, uh, in simple words the, um, the, all the concepts, all the new concepts. And I think also one of the, 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 best, um, the best quality of a developer is curiosity. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, I'm very curious about uh, front-end development, but also back-end. Like yesterday, I bought uh, I bought uh, a course on Udemy about assembly. You know, like there, I'm in a period where I would like to understand better how assembly works. So I bought uh, a course, and a course on Udemy, it's like 10 euros. You no, know? I mean, it's uh, it's 20 hours of knowledge for 10 euros. You no, know? that, that's crazy. And... Um, yeah, so I think curiosity is a very good trait for uh, for a developer, and I'm very curious about different stuff. And I don't remember exactly the expression in English. You no, know, like, like you know, like I think the problem is that when you spread your your curiosity that much, you you don't master one uh, one particular domain. You no, know? and uh, so I try at the moment I try to refocus a little bit on on certain domains. I, I, I stay uh, curious about other domains, but I would like to refocus on on some domains, like for example, web design. I would like to um, to be better at that, uh, to understand better how to uh, how to write. Because one of the big problems at the moment on Tezos and cryptocurrencies is uh, public adoption, and I believe that um, understanding how web design works and building applications that bring people to cryptocurrencies is is essential to uh, public adoption so that's something i would like to focus on um, this year and but yeah it's very important to be curious about everything and you never know sometimes you learn something that's totally unrelated to your field of knowledge and then one day you have to use it you have to to answer for example i when i learned mikkelsen i learned about the stack like i didn't know what a stack was and i had to learn about what a stack is and now I'm learning Rust, and I had to learn the difference between the stack and the heap. And I already knew what a stack is from Mikkelsen. So all those, all that knowledge, you can always use it later. You know, you never know when it's going to be useful, and one day it is going to be useful. And how do you think one should get started? The no, um, no shortcut version. So I've read a couple of tutorials. I've uh, read the documentation. What will be the to do app version of Tezos, I think that the 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 first uh, kind of app to uh, to build would be just a simple app to connect a wallet. So when you use a DApp on Tezos and you connect your wallet, it, it looks like a no brainer. Like you click on a button and you have that pop up and you select your wallet. It's like a ten second inter uh, interaction, but actually behind um, under the hood. There are like a lot of things happening, and I think it's very important from the beginning, if you want to create dApps on Tezos, to understand how that works, how the application connects to the wallet, how the all the feedback between the application and the wallet, and also all the uh, all the interface um, updates, all the UI uh, that you have to uh, to prepare for the users. Um, uh, so before the connect uh, before the wallet is connected, during the connection to the wallet, after the connection to the wallet, so I think that's a very important uh, part of uh, 
the experience on uh, on a DAP, and a lot of uh, developers who take shortcuts, uh, they uh, generally uh, underestimate this uh, this part of the, the the DAP experience, and that's actually very important because when you're a developer, you don't really understand. Uh, how non-technical users are going to to see that that moment when they connect their wallet. I know that a lot of uh, non-technical users uh, think that uh, you give power to the DAP over your wallet, which is not true. But a lot of people believe that they believe that when they connect the wallet, then the DAP you know can manipulate uh, what's inside the wallet. It's not true, but when you uh, a lot of people believe that. So I think it's very important to make that experience very smooth and um, very safe, and to make um, to make the users understand that okay, you're just connecting a wallet, so I can get your address, you know, and I can check your transaction history, and nothing else, nothing bad is going to happen. So I think, yeah, that the, the to-do app for Tezos would be just uh, an application that connects a wallet, and then you can just interact with whatever contract. You don't even need to. Uh, uh, to originate a contract yourself, you know, you can interact with a, a contract that's already on GhostNet. So now on GhostNet, we have a lot of uh, token contracts. So, for example, uh, you can interact with an AFA 1.2 contract, like uh, the entry points, um, the entry point signatures of the AFA 1.2 contract is, are pretty simple. Uh, so it's a very good example. Like, for example, you can use KUSD. Uh, I think they're on, on GhostNet. And you can just connect the wallet and then try to interact with that contract from the front end. And then you display uh, the, the user's uh, balance. And uh, that's a very good, uh, very good thing to uh, understand uh, how the, the flow of transaction uh, works, uh, how the UI should update uh, to give a good experience to the user. So a, a lot of different things about uh, the experience of using a, a decentralized application. Uh, you can learn from a very simple DAP like that. And would that be uh, Takedo Beacon Wallet Wallet API? Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, at the moment, the, the thing with Takedo is that you don't really have a choice. You have to use it. I mean, you can, if if you want to build a, a DAP without using Takedo, it's possible, but it's going to take you a lot of time, a lot of knowledge. And it's just easier to use Takedo. I mean, like the connection to the wallet, I, I, even myself, I, I wouldn't be able to do it with the, um, without Takedo. It's very complex. Uh, so it's, it's very, I wouldn't even try to do it. Uh, forging a transaction, it's possible without Takedo, uh, but it requires a lot of knowledge about how the, uh, so how the transactions are forged first but also how the RPC node works, uh, the kind of um, data that it accepts. Uh, so it's just easier to do it with Takedo. With Takedo, when you want to send a transaction to a contract, it's like four lines of code. You know, If you want to do it without Takedo, you're going to write hundreds of lines. You know? So um, yeah, so you have to, to use Takedo. And, but at the same time, you have to use it, but it's also a very good product and makes your life a lot easier. I got a lot of feedback from uh, from other developers who uh, who told me that uh, it, it really made their the work easier. Like for example, the the, the hackathon uh, where I was uh, in November uh, had one of the students come and he was like, 
uh, how do I uh, join an amount of uh, of tests, you know, to the transaction to send to the contract? I told him like when you make the contract call, there's a method on it called uh, send, and then there inside there's a parameter, and you put the amount of uh, of tests that you want to send to the contract along with the the transaction. And you look at me like oh baffled. He was like that's it, nothing else. I say yeah, that's it. He was like wow, that's cool. So yeah, if you would like to do that, you know, without a kilo, that that would uh, that would require a lot more efforts and Takiro abstracts a lot of that and it makes it really easy to start writing a, a decentralized application on Tezos. Yeah, the, the way he handles uh, signing in and just sending transactions seems like magic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, what feature or features of Takiro do you think is usually overlooked by developers? Probably... We we have some packages to interact uh, specifically with um, uh, with contract that implement tzip twelve and tzip sixteen. Uh, I think a lot of developers are not aware of them. Uh, so, for example, for tzip twelve, they 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 are going to um, uh, to fetch um, all the the data from big maps or t or tzip sixteen. They they're going to try to uh, to fetch the metadata and parse them themselves. Uh, from uh, from that code, while we have a package that that does that, that does it like very it's very easy and it's um it, yeah it's very easy to use and it makes your life easier as a as a developer. Um, I think also the the utils package is not used as much as it should. Like for example, I see a lot of developers writing code where uh, they get an um, a Tezos address as an input. And they not they don't validate it, uh, so I don't know if they don't do it because they don't know how to do it or they just uh, overlook it. Uh, but in the utils package in Takiro, we have um, we have methods to validate uh, imp uh, so addresses for implicit accounts for uh, contracts. Um, so it's it's very useful. So um, there are, there is a, there are a lot of packages inside the Takiro uh, package. Uh, so it's true that the, the Takiro, the main Takiro package is the one that, that's used the most. But uh, according to your use case in your application, it, it can also be very interesting to uh, uh, to check the other packages. Uh, they're all very well documented on uh, on the Takiro website. Uh, so it's uh, they're very easy to uh, to use. Uh, like recently, we, uh, we published the sapling package and I wrote the documentation for it. Uh, so it's true that at the moment sapling is not that much used uh, on Tezos, uh, but um, uh, earlier this week I was talking with a de uh, developer who uh, created an interface uh, to check like your balance in the sapling pool or that kind of stuff, and he uh, he used uh, the sapling package from Takiro. So um, I think this one uh, in the next years is probably going to become a little bit more popular, but at the moment it's not. It's not very well known. Are there any, in, I really don't know, are there any uh, applications right now that use sapling or anonymous transaction in general that you've seen and you find interesting, an interesting application of it? No, not really. Well, what I see is that developers on Tezos are scared at the moment to use sapling. So they, they don't really want to, to build applications for it. Uh, so I can understand that you know, because of what happened to uh, the guy from Tornado Cash. 
the thing is that uh, Tezos, uh, I mean, my my own opinion is that at the moment Tezos is still uh, is not like in the top ten blockchains, so there's not a lot, there's not as much traffic as on Ethereum, for example. So at the moment, it's still pretty safe. I don't want to say that because if someone goes to jail, it's going to be my fault. But <laughs> it's still it's still quite safe to to create an application with Sapling on uh, on Tezos, at least on GhostNet. Um, so, like for example, last weekend I spent I spent my weekend writing a contract in Camoligo. Uh, so I took the the Mikkelsen contract uh, that's uh, at the moment on uh, on Mainnet. Uh, so from Nomadic Labs, and I translated it into Camelego to offer a template. Uh, so I have that that contract reviewed by uh, by Nomadic Labs at the moment, just to make sure that that it's correct. But um, yeah, I would like to offer like more templates and more tools to people to at least understand how Sapling works. Maybe not to build a new tornado cache on on Tezos, but I think it's very crucial to understand how sapling works what you can do with it what you cannot do with it and understand that yeah you know the, probably the government has better stuff to do than you know trying to hunt you down because you write a little application on tezos using sapling i think at, at the moment we're still we're still okay with that you know? so right as, as i just said like a little bit earlier i talked with the developer who wrote an interface uh, to interact with sapling contract on ghostnet at the moment so i think it's coming like little by little and i think some developers are really interested in that and they just write applications to understand how that works like last weekend when uh, i translated that article from uh, that uh, contract from mikkelson i it helped me understand a lot of things that happen uh, with sapling at the contract level but uh it's always very good to write an application, even if you connect it only to GhostNet, so you understand how Sapling works, you understand what you can do with it, what you cannot do with it, and um, it's always a good knowledge to know for the future. I think in the future it's going to become to become bigger, and um, it's very good to be uh, in advance and to to learn more about uh, about that tech right now. Another thing I wanted to ask. Um... Was a talk you gave. You mentioned that you used web workers to delegate some part of the computation of your app. Um, can I ask what you use that for? Well, uh, I've been I've been creating a, an app that's called Mitosos Defy. Uh, so um, so it's more like a portfolio tracker for Tezos, and it connects to a lot of uh, of Defy contracts on Tezos, and so you can check your balance, you can check your rewards. Uh, there are also some features to interact uh, with the different contracts. Now that the app is a little bit old, and I've been working on the the new version for for like a year, but I I think like a lot of other developers, I I, I shift my focus very easily. So like when I see a new tool or something, I'm like a kid. I'm like, yeah, I want to try it. I want to try it. And then for the next two weeks, I'm trying that new tool, and I forget about anything I was doing before. So. Like yesterday, I started writing a, an application in Rescript. I think it's going to keep me busy for two weeks, and I'm going to forget about anything else I was doing before. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, I think in in that app, I use the web worker because there are a lot of computations uh, that are made. Uh, so to translate, like, uh, um, like for example, to manipulate the 
different um, the token balances or to calculate. Uh, like for example, um, if you if you are in a farm on on a certain protocol, uh, certain DeFi protocol on Tezos, like you have those two tokens uh, that you added as liquidity and you put them in the farm, and then if you want to know how much those two tokens are, um, I mean that pair of tokens is is worth. Then there are some calculations that you have to do. Um, so you have to take get some data from uh, from DEXs, like from QuickSwap and or Plenty Swap, and then you have to um, crunch numbers just to figure out how much that that pair of token uh, tokens is worth. So there there are a lot of um, uh, calculations like that that uh, uh, that started to be a little bit heavy for for the front end. So I put them in the web worker. And uh, so the web worker executes on a different thread, so it doesn't block the application. So it's uh, it's very good. Also, oh yeah, for for my Tezos DeFi, I also have a web worker where I listen. Um, the web worker listens to the blockchain. So every time there's a new block, the um, the web worker listens to it, and then it parses it to uh, to find transactions that were made by the user. Or mm-hmm. updates updates in the in the balances from the user, so every all of that because um, now the blockchain updates every thirty seconds, and I think for Lima it's going to be fifteen seconds, so it's pretty intensive, and um, I don't think it's it's very good to I mean for a big app like that it's not good to put it on the uh, on in the front end. It's better to have a web worker that does that, and even a service worker would be better, but. Uh, yeah, for for that app at the moment, it's just going to be a web worker. Um, but yeah, I think it's very good for uh, that kind of uh, of interaction that can uh, that could block the application. Uh, it's better to put it on in a web worker, so it gives a better experience to the user. The user can continue uh, playing with the application, and in the background, the web worker is going to continue listening to updates from uh, from the chain. Uh, and not block the the interface of the application. On that same note, are there any um, best practices for writing DApps in Tezos that are fundamentally different from Web2 best practices, or they tend to be the same? Uh, no, the, some of them are different, but the, the best practices to build an application on Tezos in general are the same on all Web3 applications. Uh, like for example, uh, one of the biggest differences that I, I can think about between Web2 and Web3 is the confirmation delay. So, you know, when you, when you are on Amazon and you buy something with your credit card, you click a button and then you wait like two, three seconds and then it's approved and you have the confirmation. I think um, regular users are used to that kind of uh, of interaction. Uh, when they buy something online, they used to have it, uh, have it done very quickly. And, um, and that do- that's not the case in Web3. Web3, um, so it can happen, like you, you buy something on the Tezos application. It can happen that it, it's, um, it's uh, confirmed very quickly, but sometimes you have to wait like 20, even 30 seconds you know, for a new block. So I think this one is, uh, is very important um, for, um, it's a very important difference between, uh, between Web 2 and Web 3. And 
developers who are creating dApps uh, must be aware of that. And so it's very important to, uh, to give some feedback to the users, to tell them, look, you have to wait. Um, we are, uh, the, the transaction is being confirmed on the blockchain. Um, and I see the, the biggest dApps at the moment on, on Tezos handle that very, very well. Like, for example, Plenty or QuipSwap, or uh, lately I used um, the, the dApp from Maverick. And so they, they handle that very well, you know, like there's some kind of animation or something that happens and uh, to make the, the, the users wait. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I really like the, um, is it better called dev? The better called dev, when you uh, deploy a contract, it has like some shields that say, hey, we're still validating. It's mm. nice to have a, a reminder that, hey, this takes time. Come on, wait. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I see, you see, like I had uh, late, uh, recently, I had uh, that, that kind of experience where the, the delay for the confirmation was, was weird. You know? Like, for example, now I live in London. When I pay with my card or with my phone or with my Apple Watch, it takes like one second. But for the holidays, I was in Italy. I don't know why, but taking like 10 seconds you know, to when I was buying something with my, with my card in a store, it was taking 10 seconds. And I noticed it as a user. I noticed the difference between one second and 10 seconds. And it made me feel like there's something wrong, you know? Exactly. And I think that that's, that's a very good experience as a user, you know, that I can bring back to my application because I, I felt that there was nothing wrong. It's probably because I don't know the, the, the connection doesn't work the same, or maybe there are more, uh, more verifications that are made, or I don't know exactly what happened, but it was longer in Italy. And now I have that experience and I can bring it when I create an application. I know that if the, the users have to wait and there's no feedback, they're going to like feel, feel that something is wrong. You know? So I think that's why it's very important first to have that kind of experience in the real world so you can understand how the users are going to feel. And then... Uh, to uh, to make sure that your interface when you create an application um, is going to handle that kind of case where you have to uh, to make your users wait for a few seconds. But for example, uh, I put it on Twitter the other day when I was using the um, the app from Maverick. Uh, I put some liquidity in the the liquidity baking uh, contract, and they have that cute animation. There's a there's a spaceship, you know, that's like flying in the middle of the screen. I know, like you look at that animation for five seconds, you know, like makes you smile. And then that's the time it takes, you know, for the, the transaction uh, to be, I mean, at that time, that was the, the time that it took for the transaction to be, uh, to be validated. So uh, I think that was a really good idea, you know, to have that, that, that thing that was a little bit out of the ordinary. And, you know, so you focus on it for a few seconds, gives you a smile, and then the transaction is gone. And, okay, everything is fine, you know. So I think that was a really good idea. Yeah, nice. Uh, on the subject of tools, um, what tools do you use in the sense of dev environment, IDE? I don't know. Do you use sandboxes? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so I use FlexTessa a lot. So FlexTessa <clears throat> is a sandbox environment uh, for, um, um, for a Tezos blockchain. So it's a mock-up of a, a Tezos blockchain in a sandbox environment. So it's very good to run tests 
locally on your computer when you write a smart contract and you want to test it. It's very good to use FlexTesa. And um, it's also updated regularly. Every time there's an, up, an upgrade on, on Tezos, that's very good. It's, uh, it's a very good tool to, uh, to test smart contracts and dApps too. In general, the, the, the flow that I use to, uh, when, I, uh, when I test a dApp is like that. First, I, I test it on FlexTesa, and then I test it on GhostNet, and then I test it on Mainnet. So I know a lot of developers are like, no, you shouldn't test on mainnet. But actually, I do a lot of tests on mainnet. And why? Because it costs like like half a cent you know, to send a transaction. So like it's really cheap. You know, I, Okay, if, if I have to test something like really, um, like a lot of times, I don't do it on mainnet. But in general, when I arrive at the step where I put the contract on mainnet, I'm pretty sure that it's going to work. So I know that the test is going to be like one transaction. And I see something that's not that's not correct. I correct it, and then I send a second transaction. And now, now it's gone. And I spend like one cent, you know, to to test it on on mainnet. So that's one also of the uh, one of the benefits of Tezos is that you can also do um, do some tests on uh, on mainnet. Uh, lately, also like uh, so, the ECAD labs have been working on Takaria. So Takaria is a tool, a develop uh, development tool. Uh, to uh, to do a lot of things on Tezos, so to write smart contracts, to test them, uh, write application. Uh, so you can um, you can use FlexTesa with it. Uh, there's a plugin to uh, to install and use FlexTesa with Takaria. So it's it's a very good tool. Um, so it's something like uh, uh, that serves the same purpose as Truffle on on Ethereum. Uh, so it's that kind of environment. Uh, the difference with Truffle is that uh, with Takaria, you can write your own plugin. Like if you have a special use case and you need a plugin, uh, it offers the possibility to uh, write your own plugin. And so you install Takaria and then you install all the plugins that you need. You don't need to install a bunch of plugins that you don't need. You just install the ones that you need. And if you even need one that, uh, that Takaria doesn't have, you can write it yourself. For example, that's what happened with the first plugin that we uh, that we had from um, uh, from a third party. It was the plugin for Archetype. Uh, so it was a plugin to so we uh, we had a plugin to compile uh, contracts from uh, from Lego and from SmartPy. And the Archetype team created a plugin for Takuria to uh, to compile Archetype contracts. So that's a very good example of how flexible Takuria is. Um, so you can write your own plugins for your own use case. And, um, yeah, so I've been using it a lot, uh, recently, um, to create smart contracts, uh, and to test them on, on FlexTesa. So yeah, mainly FlexTesa, Takaria. Um, so I write all my contracts in Lego. So I have, uh, like the Lego installed on my computer. I use it a lot, uh, to compile contracts. Um, yeah, maybe one honorable mention would be the the Mikkelsen editor from SmartPy. I think at the moment, uh, maybe the, there are other editors that I'm not aware of, but I think at the moment that's the best Mikkelsen editor that we have on Tezos. Like I used it last weekend to understand how the, the sapling contract from Nomadic Labs uh, works. Uh, so I just put the, the Mikkelsen code inside the, the editor. And then the editor is going to give you um, an idea of how the stack uh, evolves and changes. 
through the different instructions. So it's very good to have a, a better understanding of how the, the contract um, works and what it does. Uh, so yeah, lately, yeah, lately I've been writing a lot of Mikkelsen. So I've been using the uh, the editor, the Mikkelsen editor from SmartPy, and I think it's a very great tool to write Mikkelsen, but also to understand uh, what Mikkelsen contracts do. Is that a, on on the Ripple on their online Ripple? Uh, yes, yeah, it's a smartpie.io slash Mikkelsen. Oh, cool. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And yeah, uh, Takeri is pretty cool. Uh, from a learner perspective, there are two things I really liked about it. One was um, when you're starting out, I, I had a bunch of, I don't know, React apps connecting to smart contracts that I wrote on the online Ripple and deployed there. Mm -hmm. So the next step, uh, it was nice to have a bundle of the, you know, Sandbox, Legal Compiler, and Takedo all in one go. Plus, the scaffoldings helped a lot to see how someone would write and integrate uh, full stack the app. Uh, on the subject of learning Tezos, uh, say I am a Web2 developer. Um, I I'll ask this question in three steps. So on the beginner level, um, how how would I start developing? Do you think you mentioned before? Perhaps you should start with the front end, connecting with existing smart contracts, then move to uh, developing your own smart contracts. Um, what what would you say should come next? Uh, some open source contribution, building a bunch of stupid stupid projects until you understand. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Well, I I don't know that. In, in learning development, uh, there are two schools. You know, the, the first school is like you start with a simple language and then you, you build up your knowledge to a more complex language. And the second one is the opposite. Like you start from a, from a complex language and then you can, uh, after that, it's going to be easy to pick up a, a simpler language. Um, so the, I don't know exactly. So I started with JavaScript, uh, JavaScript and it's true that I had uh, a lot of problems when I wanted to learn more complex languages like like Rust because JavaScript abstracts a lot of uh, a lot of things that happen and then you uh, you start learning about OCaml and Rust and they throw word, big words at you like stack and heap and and pointers and and you have no idea what it, what it is because you were writing JavaScript. However, JavaScript is very easy to pick up and it it uh, introduces you uh, to uh, a lot of uh, programming concepts that uh, you are going to need, like variables, uh, conditions, um, scopes, that, that kind of things. So yeah, it's very, uh, I think in general, it would be better to start with JavaScript and then switch to TypeScript. Not that, yeah, I, uh, I have my, uh, my problems with TypeScript lately, but... Uh, I think it's still still a good language to understand a little bit how typing works, and uh, yeah, when when you have a good knowledge of that, um, then starting to write some applications yourself. And so I think I know React is is very popular. I'm not I'm not a big fan of React, but um, yeah, there are a lot of tutorials about React and a lot of uh, uh, developers in the community that are ready to to help. So. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's still, still a good language uh, to, to learn. 
for beginners. And yeah, just write uh, applications that be, that at the beginning are very simple, and um, and then you can build up on that, add more features, uh, or create new applications. I mean, one one of the things that I I, um, I learned from being a, a self-taught developer uh, developer is that you shouldn't be afraid of rewriting your application. I it happened a lot to me that. I had an application written in some way, and then I just deleted everything and started from scratch. And I think that's a good uh, that's a good approach uh, because as you learn more and as you mature as a developer, um, you have more knowledge, more experience. There are some things that you can write in a more efficient way, uh, things that you can organize better. And uh, I think you shouldn't be scared of. I mean, those hours that you spend building the first draft of your application, they're not lost because you you delete everything. The, those hours, they are experience, they are knowledge. They're, they're very good. You know, the, it's not, you know how they say, it's not, uh, it's not the destination, it's the journey. I mean, it's exactly that when you are a developer. You know, it's not the destination, it's the journey. The journey is the most important thing. You know, all, that, all that experience and knowledge that you accumulate over the years, that that's what's important, not the end product. Of course, the end product is important. You know, like you want to have an application that you you can, uh, you want to give it to people to use it. But the only way to to achieve that is to spend hours and hours building that experience and knowledge. And sometimes it involves just deleting everything and starting from scratch. Like for example, yesterday I started. I really want to build something with Rescript. So Rescript is um, is a functional uh, language for uh, for front end de- uh, development that compiles to JavaScript. So it has a, so the the syntax is um, very inspired by OCaml, and uh, it's uh, it's safer than using TypeScript or JavaScript. And for me, it's it's a better better language. Even if I have to use React with it, but uh, it still uh, still look looks like a very good language. And yeah. Yesterday, like after my hours of work at Takedo, I, I sat down for two hours and I was playing with it. And like, for example, I'm stuck with importing an image, not to use it on my website. I, I cannot figure out how it works. And yeah, of course, you feel stupid you know, for a few minutes because that's something, importing an image and, and putting it on the website, that's something I can do in Svelte or even in vanilla JavaScript in one minute. But now I'm stuck on Rescript with that. And I think it's still very important to to have that feeling that that okay you're not stupid it's just that it's a new tech and yeah you have to start from zero but you already have the experience from all the hours that you spent before uh, writing applications and that um, that uh, that obstacle where you stuck you're just going to jump over it and then you're going to accumulate more experience about it so. I think I saw a lot of developers being scared of just deleting the application and starting over, and they shouldn't be. I think that's that's a very good move. Even a big application, if you if you think that you could do it better, just delete everything and start from scratch. And it's not it's not lost. It's uh, everything you have, all the knowledge and experience you have now in your brain. No, nobody can take that away from you. It's not. It will never be lost. It's something that 
you will build upon. And yeah, so just build application and you will see like there are a lot of things that at the beginning feel uh, feel very weird or you don't know how to do them. And then you have you accumulate that experience and they, they come naturally. You know, there, there are a lot of things like I, I answer a lot of questions on the, the Takilo Telegram channel and a lot of developers, they, they ask questions and I know the answer. Like, I don't even have to think about it. I already know the answer. And I, I don't know the answer because I'm some kind of genius or something, just because I had the same problem like many times, you know. And now it just comes it just comes naturally that I know the solution. And that you can get that only by experience, only by writing a lot of code all the time. It's a bit off topic, but have you tried Elm? Uh yes. So actually I I I think two years ago. I followed a course on uh, on Udemy about Elm. Uh, yeah, I really like the the functional programming pattern of the of the language. Um, but the the problem is that I I don't know. I didn't really understand how to use uh, existing JavaScript libraries with Elm. I'm not even sure if it's possible, and I think that's very limiting. Uh, like for example, I would like to use Takedo with Elm, and I'm not really sure how to do that. Uh, I found the language really interesting, uh, but for example, Rescript is something that that you can do natively with Rescript. You can import JavaScript libraries and use them directly in your code. Well, you have you have to write some wrapping code around them to make it work with Rescript, but still easier. Yeah, Elm is is very yeah. I really like the syntax. And uh, the the way the way of thinking the application, but uh, I thought it was a little bit limited because you cannot really use uh, JavaScript uh, packages that already exist. Yeah, the whole JavaScript ecosystem it's huge. Yeah, it's yeah, wait, it's a waste not to use it, even though mm. it can mm. be messy. Yeah, mm. I mean, so even for a Tezos application, that that's that's. Uh, 100% necessary. I mean, you have to use Takilo uh, in, a, in a JavaScript application, I mean, a web application. So if you use a language that where you cannot import easily a JavaScript application into the into the code that, that you write, then it's going to be very difficult. And like at the moment, we have the same problem with the mobile applications on Tezos. Uh, it's very complicated to, to make one because the JavaScript libraries don't... Uh, interact very well with the stuff like react native uh, so yeah that i think that that's the same kind of problem that's very limited limiting and a lot of developers they don't want to uh, to handle that they just want to like write the application and uh, and publish it so there there are some developers who want to take the time like, to make it to, not to take the the, the easiest way, like for example, the guys at Nomadic Labs, uh, they wrote the Umami wallet for mobile and it's a Rescript React native. And as a guy who writes uh, Rescript, I understand how much work they had to do, like instead of just making something that would have been more simple, but they must have done like a lot of work to make it, to make, because they used Takedo with it. And that, that must have, Required a lot of work to make Takilo works in a Rescript React Native application. So, 
yeah, it's it's more complicated. And how does one get a job in Tezos? Uh, yeah, so first, I think right now it's a great uh, it's a great time to learn about Tezos because there are uh, there is a big demand for uh, for developers. There are not a lot of them, both smart contract developers. And uh, I, I receive messages all the time about uh, if I have some free time to jump on a project and I don't. Uh, so there is a demand for uh, for developers on Tezos, and we don't have them. So I think it's it's a good move. It's a good move to uh, to learn about Tezos development uh, if you're looking for a job on Tezos. And um, yeah, I think one one thing that's missing at the moment on Tezos is some kind of billboard or a job job board. Uh, where the companies could advertise if uh, if they need someone or not. Uh, that would be. Or I've always wanted to create something like Gitcoin on on Tezos, like, like that kind of job board where, uh, like, if you have a, I need someone like your company, and uh, you need someone to write a smart uh, an FA two contract. You just go on the the job board. You say, okay, I need someone for that that smart contract. There's a smart contract behind the application. You put some tests, and then one person jumps on, jumps on the the job uh writes the the smart contract and then gets the 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 prize you know for writing the smart contract so i think that would be that would be a great idea on on, uh, on tezos i think on you know, the tezos the tezos.com website there's some there's some kind of uh of job board uh but i don't think there are a lot of jobs there i think the the best way I mean, the, the whole community on tezos is on twitter I think the best way if you're looking for a job on uh, on Tezos is just to create um, a Twitter account and uh, to post a tweet and say, okay, I'm looking for a job or uh, you can follow uh, like the big companies on, on Tezos. Uh, maybe one of them is uh, is hiring. So I think Twitter is still a very good resource on, on Tezos uh, if you want to learn more about Tezos, but also if you're looking for a job or just to interact with the with uh, with other developers on Tezos. And say you were in, chi- in charge to make the whole Tezos ecosystem to flourish, both dev sides mm. and user sides. Uh, I don't know. Say you have funding and a small army of lobbyists in different countries. What would you do? Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think... The, the only thing that's really missing at the moment on Tezos, and it's, uh, I think a, lo- uh, a lot of companies have been trying to solve that and they failed, is adoption. There's not enough adoption on Tezos. There are not enough users coming. There are not enough people using Tezos. And we have those spikes in the ecosystem when there's there's a project that brings a lot of users, like for example, the Manchester United NFTs. But those users come, but they don't stay. And I think that's that's a problem. The problem is that there's no there's no application right now that's um, that targets the public, like a large public, and above all, that creates retention of that public on Tezos. Something, some kind of application that 
brings people and also make people stay on Tether. So yeah, th there is like Dogami. I think I think gaming on Tezos is going to be very big this year or maybe next year. Like we need some kind of uh, games like that on Tezos because they are the things that bring people and keep people on Tezos, like Dogami. I mean, Dogami, you know, it's a game, so you have to play it every day and every day you're on Tezos. And I think also one of the great, uh, the great things about Dogami is that you don't really... It abstracts a lot of the, the interactions with the blockchain. So you don't really have that feeling that, okay, uh, I know uh, I have to know how to use a wallet or stuff like that. You know, like, I think that's, that's a very good concept to bring people and keep them on Tezos. So, yeah, I think that I, I would, if I had that kind of funding, I would try to find an idea where people come to Tezos and they stay. They use the blockchain for for different stuff. Like for example, at the moment, I heard some people talking about like ticketing systems on Tezos. I think that's also a great idea. So selling tickets for for uh, plays, for concerts, stuff like that, uh, directly as NFTs. Uh, I think that's a great idea to bring people to Tezos and also keep them because you will have to issue tickets regularly. So regularly, those people are going to come back to Tezos to buy the, the tickets. And I think that kind, that's the kind of idea that, that we need on Tezos. Um, we have to create more applications that bring people and keep them. For sure. And one aspect of that is developers, right? More developers should build more things, and those things should be... Uh, interesting for people to use and user-friendly and yeah. all of those things. Um, yeah. And, and I think also one one of the, the the problems that I see on Tezos when I compare it to other blockchains is, well, you know, nobody likes, likes competitors in their own job, but we need more dev uh, developers advocates on, uh, on Tezos. There, there's not... The, I, I think, I mean, it's my personal opinion, but I think there are not enough influencers um, on social media for Tezos. And that's like, for example, I, I, uh, I started getting interested in other blockchains, like just to see how they work, what they do, uh, the kind of technology they use. And uh, I, uh, for example, I read the documentation for the smart, smart contract language of Flow. They have a, a language called Cadence. That's actually pretty good. I, pretty, I like the, the language. It's quite interesting. And so I watched some tutorials you know, about it. And the tutorials, they're like very engaging. Like they, they have those people, you know, like they, they wear like neon colors, you know, and they're all like smiling and moving. And, you know, like they, they have that background, you know, like with a lot of colors, you know, that there are like some teddy bears and stuff in the background, you know, like it's very, it's very like, you know, and I, I think that that's very good, you know, like when you're, when you're a developer, you don't want to, to sit and uh, listen for one hour about a guy, you know, explaining to you like, like functional programming in Mikkelsen and my God, no, you don't, you don't want that. No, you, you want to look at the video like 15, 20 minutes where you have like people full of energy, you know, that, that explain to you how the blockchain works, what it does, you know, like, and they, they are, you know, they talk to you, you know, like they, they, they look like they're passionate about their job, you know, 
And I think we don't have that on Tezos. We, uh, th that's something that I try to do on my level, you know, like on, on Twitter or in my tutorials. And I try like to be a little bit more engaging. I try to, to talk to people in, in, uh, in simple words, to explain to them how it works. But I think that's something that, that we're missing on Tezos. Uh, there's not enough investment in social media. And it's 2023. You know, social media is everywhere. I mean, people spend hours every day on social media. And we need those people. We need, like, for example, in November, I met that guy at the, at the, uh, at the hackathon. And he's uh, one of those NFT influencers, and, and he's on Tezos. Like he has like ten thousand followers on Twitter. He is that kind of guy, you know. Like I mean, you you look at him; he was he was like almost dancing the whole day, you know, when he was talking about Tezos. That was amazing to look at him. I mean, I don't even remember what he was talking about. I just remember the, the character, you know, like the 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 person, you know. Like, we need people like that on Tezos, you know. We need people who are engaging who make you feel like, like, okay, what is that Tezos thing? You know, I need to try it. Like, what are those people? You know, they're amazing. You know, like, people, it's sad to say, but people are more impressed by NFT influencers but rather than, like, PhDs, you know, like, okay, you spend 10, 10 years of your life, you know, learning computer science. That, that's great, but that's not what average people look for. You know, they look for people who talk to them, who engage with them, who make them feel stuff, you know? I think that there's not enough feeling on Tezos, you know? Like, there's not that, like, you see some passionate people, like, uh, like those people on Flow, they, they really, like, I watched some of their videos and, like, they, they were really amazing, you know? Like, they, they make you feel like, okay, what's that stuff, you know? I need to read more. I need to learn more. When, when you watch videos about Tezos developers, you don't have that feeling. You're like, okay, the guy is very brilliant. He, he knows how to explain his stuff. But there's no feeling, there's no like emotional connection with the blockchain. I think that that thing is very important and we don't have that on Tezos. We need to have more influencers on Twitter, on Instagram, or even on TikTok. Like I hate TikTok, but a lot of people use it. You know? So we need people there like with neon colors, with a full of, full of energy you know, that deliver a message of positivity about Tezos. I think that that's something that needs to be solved on Tezos. We need those people. No, yeah, for sure. When um, you meet such a people, it's it's contagious. Yeah, yeah. And you don't even remember what they were talking about. You just remember, if I meet that NFT influencer again, I'm going to be like, oh, you're the guy from the, the hackathon in November. You know, I don't remember his name or anything, but I remember the character, I remember the presence of that guy. You know, I think that that, that's very important, you know, like that, that's something that, that we need, you know, that, that connection with people who love Tezos, you know, like not, not with the developers who are like brilliant and geniuses and they're very good at what they're doing, but we need that emotional connection with the blockchain. And what about the middle ground? Because we have um, those academics that tends to have talks that are more dense in nature and less appealing to the mass public. We have those um, energetic uh, internet celebrity kind of types that um, are super important. But what about the things, that, like, the things you do? So someone that writes documentation for developers that perhaps are not 
um um mm-hmm. academics but you know uh what what mm-hmm. does it take to write a good documentation how do you uh make that grow like this mm-hmm. so uh, what i mean is compared uh-huh. to yeah, established yeah. frameworks the thesis documentation mm-hmm. is is the compared to what it was is great but mm-hmm. there's a lot of room for improvement so My question is what does it take to write a good mm. documentation since you've wrote many of them. Mm. So first on that subject I have a personal theory that comes from my linguistic background I think one one of the issues about delivering the message about the technology on Tezos is and I'm sorry to say it a lot of the developers are French and their English is good but it's not native good And one of the main difference in linguistics because the, between the French language and the English language is the tone. And the tone in English language is very important. But in French language, it's not. You know the French, they speak English like that, and it's very good to speak French like that. No, it's not a problem in French. You understand what I mean? But yes. when you speak English, you don't speak like that. You, know? you speak with a tone. You know, like your, your, your voice goes up and down when you speak. In French, it doesn't go up and down that much. I mean, my voice in French goes up and down because I'm from the south of France and I have a special accent. But those people from Paris, they don't speak like that. You know, the tone is very flat. In French, it's not a problem. But I think English speakers, they connect that tone. You know? It keeps their, their mind focused. And when you, like I was at TestDev and I listened to some of the talks by some of the French developers on Tezos. And they're brilliant. They're amazing people. The geniuses, you know, like they, they know that stuff like A to Z, but they don't know how to deliver because they have that French accent, and it's it's boring. You know, it makes you want to sleep. You know, when when you are an English speaker, because you cannot connect to that to that tone. You know, like you 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 cannot follow the up and down in when they speak. So it's it's very it's very nonchalant. It's very boring. And I think that. That's one, so because I was a translator, I'm more focused about the tone when I speak. You know, I try to, to stress the words properly in English. I don't do it all the time. Like For example, late, uh, recently someone told me that it's not developer, it's developer. So I'm trying to, to, uh, to correct that. And it's going to, to show in the recording. But okay, in, in, in French, when you're a French speaker and you, you, you learn English, it's very difficult to do. But I think it's it's a very important part of the language. And I think if you are in Tezos and you want to deliver speeches about uh, the tech, about the uh, the ecosystem, whatever, you have to better your English. You have to understand how that tone thing works so you can engage with the people. And most of those people, they are... They are English speakers. You know, when, when I talk about Tezos with French people, I speak in French. I don't speak in English. When I speak English about Tezos, it's because I speak with people who don't speak French, and most of them are English speakers. I mean, they all are, I mean uh, what I mean is that uh, a lot of them are native English speakers. All of them are English speakers. But the native ones, they're even more, uh, more sensitive to that, that stress you know, in the language. So I, I think that barrier of language is also something that's, that's overlooked on Tezos because a lot of the developers are French native and their English is good, but it's not good enough to engage with people, to interact with them, to keep them focused for 30 minutes about some technical subject. And I think that's something that should be corrected 
And I understand that a lot of them don't have time, you know, to uh, to correct that. And it's very difficult. I mean, I know a lot of French people that have been speaking English for 10 years and they, they cannot stress it properly. And um, so it's very difficult to do, but I, I think uh, it's something that's, that's important to do. And to come back to writing documentation, I, I, I think you have to know the the people you are you are writing for that's very important so in the same way that i was explaining that you have to know the people you are talking to you also have to know the people you are writing for if you are writing for people who are very technical people who are non technical so in general i focus on non technical or uh, people who have basic knowledge uh, of programming so I think I'm I'm pretty good at talking with those people and writing for them because I I can explain more complex um, uh, concepts in in simpler words. Um, so yeah, you have to choose your your audience. You have to choose uh, which people you are going to write for, and then you have to adapt your writing to uh, to these people. So I think a good documentation is um, one of the the main. Uh, the main qualities of good documentation is first knowing who you're going to write for. Like for example, when I write an article on Medium and post it on Twitter, it's it's different than when I write documentation for the official Takedo website, because the official Takedo website is going to be read by uh, by developers, while my Medium articles are going to be read by anybody, like people who are not technical, who are technical, who are in the middle. So I think it's very important to adapt. Uh, to your audience, to know them, and then uh, adapt the the way you write uh, to the people you uh, you want to write for. Well, it's working, man. Um, Claude, thanks a lot for your mm -hmm. time. Thanks a lot for your uh, articles. They've been really helpful, and I'm looking forward uh, the things you're going to write this year. I saw your comments that you're going to write about uh, templates for sampling contracts more JavaScript Rust tutorials with a Web3 slash Tezos twist. I'm looking forward to those. Yeah. To, to those. Thank you for your time today, man. And yeah, let's keep it Thank you very much for the invitation.